stuff of how Jesus entered Jerusalem, which pointed towards the real highlight of his ministry that was still to come. More of that later. Uh, Tonight I want us to stay with those two points, though. What the crowd got right and what the crowd got wrong. There's a batting order in your uh, news sheet that has the headlines on. It gives you something to look at, scribble on, write some questions, come and talk to me afterwards. Uh, Have your Bibles open, by the way, if you haven't got them. It would be helpful if we looked at this passage together. It's page 1054. We're going to do a little bit of finding other passages as well. 1054, Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through to 44. So first of all, therefore, what the crowd got right which is Jesus is king. What the crowd got right, which is Jesus is king. This crowd is clearly very excited at the arrival of Jesus. When, when um, Jesus mentions the disciples, uh, by the way, uh, it, it, when, when Luke mentions the disciples in verse 37, the whole crowd of disciples, it's not just the 12 disciples. This is the whole crowd of people who've been following Jesus around Galilee, and they'd come with Jesus from Galilee to Passover. That, by the way, was entirely normal, because it was really normal for people from Galilee, if you were a good Jew, to go to Jerusalem three times a year for a major festival. If you could only do one festival, you'd do Passover, yeah? And it was a bit like Thanksgiving in America, where you always go back to your hometown. Well, this was just, if you're a good Jew, you go from wherever it is, and you take days out, and you travel to Jerusalem. So the fact that Jesus led a party to Jerusalem and they were good uh, Jews, that's entirely normal. But what were they excited about? Well, in order to understand what gets a crowd excited, you need to look at three things. What's got to them? What are they doing? And what are they saying? Yeah? So imagine, for, uh, imagine, for example, uh, the demonstrators, I think it was a few weeks ago, protesting at the UK leaving the EU. This is before Article 50 was triggered. If you'd arrived from Mars that day, you'd have needed to know what had gone on before which was the referendum last year, what were they doing, which was protesting about our exit, and what were they chanting, which was no to Brexit. You need to kind of get those three things, yeah? And if you put all those three things together, you work out what's going on with the crowd, yeah? Well, let's look at this crowd, yeah? What had happened, what were they doing, and what were they saying? Well, in terms of what had happened, it's made clear at the end of verse 37, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices. Why? For the, all the miracles they had seen. These were people who had come down from Galilee and who had seen Jesus do amazing things. Heal the sick, cure the blind and the lame, provide food for 5,000 hungry people, walk on water, raise the dead. They were full of joy for a man who apparently could do anything. They had seen him do these things. They were eyewitnesses. They were not rumor mongers. They believed that with Jesus, everything was possible. And what they were doing? Besides the praising, look back with me to verse 35. It says, as he went along, uh, um, verse 36, sorry, as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. What's that all about? Well, spreading cloaks on the road was something you did to somebody of great importance. Uh, This was no ordinary man entering Jerusalem. Basically, this was the red carpet treatment. Yeah? By the way, if you've wondered where are the palm branches, if you've asked that question, Luke doesn't mention palm branches in his gospel. I I don't think it's because they weren't waving them that day, but the palm branches were ultimately a Jewish nationalistic symbol, a bit like waving a a Jewish flag. Luke's writing his gospel for Gentiles, for non-Jews. He doesn't want anything to get in the way of that. 
That's why the, the palms aren't mentioned, but they were there. And what were they saying? Verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They are praising God, and the reason is that the one who is being welcomed is not just any pilgrim, pilgrim visiting Jerusalem, but the Messiah, the king, the one who has been promised, the one who would bring in God's rule into God's world. This first line is a, a sort of quote from Psalm 818 with the insertion of the word the king in the middle. They believe they are welcoming the chosen one of God, of king. And you've got to remember, by the way, these disciples, all good Jews who've come down from Galilee to Jerusalem for the Passover, they were waiting for their own king. Because for years the Jews had labored under Roman occupation or some other foreign occupation, waiting for a king of their own who would reign over them in justice and peace, setting them free from occupation and enabling them to live in God's land in God's way. And in Jesus, they're saying, this king's arrived. Now, 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 put those three things together, what's happened, what they're doing, and what they're saying, and you can see why the crowd is excited. They believe that in welcoming Jesus, they are welcoming none other than the new king of Israel. A new hope for Israel, a new work from God, and the man who has supreme power even over death. I want to say, the crowd got this bit dead right. That is who they were welcoming. They were welcoming a king. But he wasn't a king simply of Israel. He was king of the whole world. And I want you just to kind of keep your finger in Luke and go forward with me to Colossians chapter 1. Paul writing, it's um, on page 1183. Paul writing probably about AD 65, something like that about this man who rode into Jerusalem that day. And just look with me at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. You may want to read it, or you may want to just listen to me as I speak it. This is Paul writing of Jesus. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. That's who was walking into, into Jerusalem that day. The image of the invisible God the one who caused the stars to be flung out into space in the first nanosecond of time was entering Jerusalem that day. The one through whom all things were created and the one who caused all human authority to be put in place. This is who Jesus is. The world was created through him and for him. He deserves all glory and praise. He has power over death and evil, driving out demons and raising the dead. Jesus is not one of a series of philosophers who form a chorus in human history. He is the king of all history and the king of all life. In Jesus, God was doing the decisive act for Israel and for the people of the world, for after Jesus, nothing would be the same again. That's why Jesus says, by the way, what he does. If you go back with me to Luke 
19 and, and see what he says to the Pharisees who tell Jesus' disciples off. They say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I, you know, it's wrong that you're being praised. He says in verse 40, I tell you, he replied, if they kept quiet, the stones will cry out. It's almost as if he's saying that creation wouldn't be able to restrain itself. You might have read some of the Narnia Chronicles and the wonderful way in which C.S. Lewis shows that even the trees bow down to Aslan, the Christ-like figure. There's something about Jesus that, look, even the thing that seems to have no life about it at all, even that would shout off and praise me. That is who was entering Jerusalem that day, was the king of the world. You'll have heard me speak before when I go to Orthodox churches. A number of us saw this when we went to Greece for our pilgrimage last year in the steps of St. Paul. And when you go into an Orthodox church and do this wherever you go, it's got an Orthodox building. You go up and there, looking down on you in the cupola, the round at the top, is a picture of Jesus the King. And it's there because the image is he is the king over all the world. A wonderful, powerful image. But that is who was entering into Jerusalem that day. And he deserves our praise. We do not worship Jesus because he needs it. We worship Jesus because we need to remember that. We worship Jesus because we need to remember who is king. Because you might think it's Donald Trump. You might think it's... uh, Theresa May. I tell you one person who doesn't think that she's the ultimate monarch, and that's our queen. Because when she was crowned, she had an orb and a scepter, and at the top of it had a cross. Over the world, the orb is a a globe representing human power, and at the top of it is a cross, because Jesus has power over the world. When we gather together Sunday by Sunday to praise Jesus, it's not for our benefit. It's not for his benefit. It's because we need to remember who is king. And I want to say the crowd got it right to praise Jesus that day. And I I want to say praising Jesus is something that's vital for us to continue to do. That, that, That actually it's a discipline because there'll be all sorts of things that whisper away in our ears, worship me. Think I'm in charge. Follow me on Twitter because I've got real power. It's when we come here that we're reminded who is king. Uh, I I did a men's breakfast talk a few weeks ago called 10 Things I've Always Wanted to Say. It wasn't recorded, otherwise I would only said three of them. Um, But one of the things I said was Sunday worship really matters. It may not be surprising for a vicar to say that, but I, I just think it's really important that we gather together week by week to worship Jesus for who he is. Because if not, we'll get distracted elsewhere. There'll be lots of things in a world of competing attractions and money, work, or people that say, worship me. We're helped by coming together to worship as a community. The crowd got it right that they worship Jesus as king. Will we do that? Will we make that a priority to worship Jesus as king? What the crowd got wrong, though, was Jesus is not the king we expect. Jesus is not the king we expect. You see, in their excitement, the crowd missed out one key aspect of Jesus' arrival. It's there in verse 35. They brought the donkey to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. Now you might say, well, what's so remarkable about that? Jesus was tired, he wanted to rest, he happened to see a donkey there. This was the only form of transport there was, you know. It just doesn't add up, does it? 
in the previous verses, Jesus is very clear, he must ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Hence all that stuff about the disciples going to fetch it, you know, all that big hoo-ha about, you know. You know I think, by the way, the words, the Lord needs it, is a code word. It was like the code word for, you know, it had all been prearranged that Jesus had uh, arranged with the donkey's owner that he would ride in on it. There's clearly something symbolic about riding on a donkey. Jesus is trying to say something by his mode of transport, not in words, but in actions. So what's he trying to say? What does a donkey represent? Well, let's consider the transport options that Jesus had that day. Okay? Bearing in mind walking wasn't going to be great. That was probably what everybody did. What would a crowd expect a coming king to ride in on? A mighty war horse would be the one form of transport that befitted someone's power and majesty. When the great Jewish hero, Judas Maccabees, had defeated the Syrians and won back control of Jerusalem just over 150 years before, he had ridden into Jerusalem on a mighty war horse. Or think how leaders travel today. Now, he may not be a king, but Donald Trump is as close as we get to in the States. This is his mode of transport. It's the Cadillac presidential limousine. It's called the Beast. This is how Watcar wrote it up. It's got armor-plated doors that are eight inches thick, each weighing the same as a cabin door on a Boeing 757 airliner. The boot contains an independent oxygen supply and advanced firefighting system. It has defense systems including pump-action shotguns, night vision cameras, and tear gas cannons. Supplies of the president's blood are kept on board in case he needs emergency medical treatment. Tires are Kevlar-reinforced puncture and shred resistance with special steel tip rims that allow the car to continue driving even if the tire is missing. The bodywork is made up of a combination of dual hardness steel, aluminium, titanium, and ceramic material to help up break up projectiles aimed at the car. And inside is a state-of-the-art communication center and individually reclining seats, hand-stitched with every other human comfort. You get, the, you get the message, this guy's important, you know, don't you? But imagine if Watcar had written a report of the presidential's limousine like this. The new presidential Fiat Uno marks the new presidency with some style. Mass-produced mass in Italy, this 10-year-old model has been brought on higher purchase by the White House and will be used for all ceremonial occasions. Security features include doors that don't quite shut properly, dodgy electrics, and slightly rusting bodywork. Uprated air conditioning comes in the form of windows that are stuck open. The radio is stuck on classic FM, and the seats are partially covered with faded grey leatherette. What would that communicate about the president and how he saw himself and how others saw him? It would immediately say something about the position that the president and others saw him holding in society. In other words, by taking a form of transport that was low, Jesus was trying to make a point. And that point he was making was that he was a different sort of king. He was not a political revolutionary on some sort of mission to get rid of the Romans and establish a new Jewish state. He wasn't the sort of king that the crowd thought they wanted, someone to lead them to earthly freedom and give Pontius Pilate one in the eye. By arriving on a donkey, Jesus was saying that he was a very different sort of king. So what sort of king was he if he wasn't a political warlord? Well, there's another passage that helps us understand because it includes a prophecy about a king arriving on a donkey. Go back with me to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It's very easy to find Zechariah. It's only seven books after Obadiah. Okay, that's the way to remember. Okay, it's also the penultimate book of the Old Testament, and it's on page 955. 
more significantly. Um, yeah, that's good, isn't it? Yeah, I'm leaping through. I found Leviticus. Um, so go to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 on page 955. And listen, Zechariah, by the way, I found out this morning, is the prophet most quoted in the passion narratives in all the Gospels. So, so when it comes to Holy Week, Zechariah's your man. Okay, This is what he says in, in uh, uh, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Uh, That that says, that quote, that that the king who's coming on a donkey is going to bring two things. He's going to bring peace to the nations by eliminating the weapons of evil and he's going to bring release to the prisoners by the blood of the covenant. That's why it says in verse 11, as for you, because of the blood of my covenant... I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. How is Jesus the king going to do these two things? Well, he does these things not simply by riding into Jerusalem, but what he'll do that coming Friday. He'll do it not by riding into Jerusalem, but by dying on a cross. How? Because on that cross, Jesus gives the world a chance of peace by defeating the power of evil and giving us the chance to be not enemies, but friends with God. And on that cross, Jesus spilled his blood so that those held captive by sin could go free. You see, Jesus the King is not the political warlord, but the crucified Saviour. The crown Jesus would wear would be a crown of thorns. And the place where his kingship would be seen was not on a throne, on a cross. Now we can see why uh, the highlight of Jesus' ministry is not the adulation of the crowd that day in Jerusalem, but when he was lifted high that following Friday. You see, and I don't think the crowd of disciples got it. They, they were so busy, caught up in the ecstasy of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, they didn't get the warning signs that he was not the type of king they were expecting. They were kind of projecting their expectations onto Jesus as to who he was and what he'd come to do, instead of really looking at who Jesus was as he was presenting himself and his mission. And it's not just the disciples who do that. We all do. Sarah was leading us in our Bible study, a staff Bible study a week or so ago. She summed it up for me brilliantly with this question. Okay, listen to this. This is really good. Are we celebrating and praising a God of our own making, or faithfully and humbly following God in dependence and honour of who he is for his glory, regardless of our expectations. I'll say that again, so good. Are we celebrating and praising a God of our own making? That's what the disciples were actually doing. They were doing Jesus the political saviour bloke. Or are we faithfully and humbly following God in dependence and honour of who he is for his glory, regardless of our expectations. Let me put it like this. Am I just praising God because I think he's the best way to an easy life, my next job, or a smooth retirement? Am I praising Jesus just because I want him to do a miracle for me? 
Am I just praising Jesus because I want to enlist him to support my own political manifesto? Or am I praising Jesus aware that I have not discovered everything that I need to about him, that his word will continue to challenge me, that I need to grow in his ways, not my own? Am I praising Jesus in the midst of tough times, not just because I think he's done me a favor? We're called to praise Jesus not because of what we want him to do for us, but because of who he is and the honor he deserves as our crucified and our risen Savior. I think that, by the way, is what leads to Jesus' reaction as the city of Jerusalem comes into sight. This is what Jesus would have seen as he came down Jerusalem. Uh, This um, picture is taken from the Mount of Olives. Uh, And if you go to Jerusalem today, you, you can follow the Palm Sunday procession going down the cliff, uh, the hill, uh, where this photo was taken, overlooking the city of Jerusalem. Those walls and the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock, that's the place that the temple was in. And the temple would have filled uh, was that place where the Dome of the Rock is. It was the biggest uh, building in Jerusalem. The walls, the complex was about as big as you can see even now. And yet Jesus looked at that. And most people, when they went in Jerusalem and came over the Mount of Olives, they went, wow. Jesus didn't go, wow. He wept. Why? Because he knew the very place which should receive God's work was the very place that wouldn't. He, he, he looked at that city of Jerusalem where God's people were coming together to celebrate what God was doing. And he knew that very place would be the place where they shouted, crucify. And the very place which you'd think would receive God's peace plan was actually the place which was going to go into battle against God himself. If only, he says, if only you had known on this day what would bring you peace but now it is hidden from your eyes. You did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. He looks over Jerusalem, and he looks forward to the time when it will be destroyed as judgment for the fact it rejected God when he came. And indeed, the temple was destroyed in AD 70, but the real failure was that week when the city did not realize what sort of king was coming. I remember standing in this spot with a pilgrimage group a couple of years ago, on the very spot where Jesus wept, looking over the old city of Jerusalem, so beautiful and yet so torn apart in many ways. It was very emotional, thinking of how Jesus can bring not just individuals peace with God, but also the world peace with God. And yet so many still reject him. Small wonder I remember a number of our pilgrimage group burst into tears as they saw this sight. Small wonder. For this world still needs peace. The peace that only Jesus can bring. So I want to say tonight, which Jesus will we praise as a community this evening? Do we want to praise the royal Jesus the disciples were praising? Jesus the king who would sort out all their earthly problems? Jesus the king who would make their lives rather easier? In our world of self-centered spirituality, that Jesus can be very popular and attractive. He's there for me when I need him, a bit like a kind of um, uh, Aladdin's magic lamp, you know, you get a little nice little kind of rub it and something nice happens. In our world of celebrity, it's very tempting to turn Jesus into a sort of king, a kind of successive and impressive miracle worker. I want to say, will we praise the real Jesus who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey? The Jesus whose mission went far beyond 
changing the political culture of the day, to dealing with evil once and for all, bringing freedom and peace where once there was war and captivity. The Jesus who went up to Jerusalem not to receive praise, but to die. That Jesus is the true king, because he has the victory over the oldest enemies of all, which is sin and death. There is only one king of your life who is worth that title, and that is Jesus Christ. He has the power to give you peace with God. He has the power to set you free, and he is worthy of your praise and your life. I want to say to you this week, follow Jesus this week all the way to the cross and experience once again next Sunday as we see Jesus breaking through death and rising to glory for the first time or for the 51st time, the life-changing power of the King Jesus, not our political saviour, but our risen Lord.